welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Today, I'm really happy to welcome Sunny Agarwal, lead researcher at Tendermint, or was the lead researcher at Tendermint, contributor to Cosmos, Cosmos Hub, and now founder of Seeker. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. So to give some context, uh, the Cosmos Network is a decentralized network of independent, scalable, and interoperable blockchains. The Cosmos Network is also built around Tendermint Core, which is the kind of linkage to Tendermint, the company, and effectively that uh, is a solution that packages the networking consensus layers of a blockchain. You've then got Tendermint Inc., which is the software development company, which is your previous employer, um, and that is contracted by the Interchain Foundation to develop the Cosmos Network, in particular the Cosmos Software Development Kit SDK. Did I get that right as a summary? <laughs> yeah, so many names, and some of them tend to be like reused in some pieces. Like you know, Tendermint is this consensus protocol, but it's also the software and it's a company. So, but yeah, you you, you nailed it right on the head. All right, great. Now, obviously, we'll, we'll kind of go into a little bit about how all of these various organizations comprise the ecosystem and, and how they're mm-hmm. uh, evolving uh, a little bit later. But you're also a co-host of Epicenter, so I'm a little bit nervous, to be honest with you. You're, you're kind of a pro. I'm just starting out at this, so maybe you can uh, help me along. But I listened sure... to a couple of your episodes already, and they're, they're just great. All right. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. You, you kind of got to say that, right? So, so the reasons why I want you on the show, a number of them. So, you know, you're not technically a founder at uh, Tendermint or, or Cosmos, Cosmos Network. Uh, that was obviously Jay and Ethan, but you were one of the kind of first hires almost, um, the kind of initial core team, and you've been heavily involved in most of uh, the network's developments. And I think, you know, if you look at Cosmos is representative of the wider blockchain movement and how these protocols are formed and then evolve or devolve to the community. I think that is a, a really interesting perspective that from a, from a founder's perspective, um, it hasn't really been that well covered. And I guess in many ways, you are the community guy, right? You're at the core of the community and, and provide that kind of interface. And I also think, you know, when I kind of listen to your stuff, whether it's panels that you've done or the podcast, you're, you're very good at simplifying complexities and, and helping people understand blockchains through useful, sometimes kind of historical analogies. So I'm sure we're, we're going to get a few of those really great sound bites uh, throughout the podcast. You've also run a number of initiatives, both at uh, Consensus for Ethereum and then Berkeley about onboarding developers. And again, I think that's a a really big theme for where we are as an industry right now. So I really want to pick your brains about how we onboard the 99% of developers into into blockchain. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I kind of just quickly try to summarize your background, you did an undergraduate in electrical engineering computer science at Berkeley 2015. As I said, you spent some time at Consensus as an Ethereum developer intern in 2017, and you helped kind of train enrollees of the Consensus Academy, and you did a number of uh, fixes around ontology. 
you then were a course designer lecturer back at Berkeley, or I guess that was kind of during that, that same period, where you co-designed and taught the cryptocurrency cacao to over 200 students now, I think, since uh, since fall 2016, and did a number of other things there. And then, of course, you, you've kind of contributed a lot by way of blockchain at Berkeley and the, the circulation of various white papers and helping students develop proof of concept. So, like, very hands-on, right at the edge of onboarding you know people in, into this new space some of which maybe are uh, new to development more generally you then joined tenement in june 2017 as a research scientist and you worked on everything from crypto economics through to you know the technicalities fault tolerance system design and the cosmos sdk and i believe we try to keep these podcasts quite timeless but you have left literally yesterday or last week tendermint and have got on to film seeker which is a blockchain infrastructure company i think it does a number of things but in particular for cosmos hub your top five validator so again i think that's a really representative this evolution of how teams kind of work together and then and then start to spin out did i miss anything in that i, I tried to keep it as tight as possible yeah, no, that was uh, that, that was really great. I was an intern at Consensus, so I was there only for like, you know, two or three months. And <laughs> I kind of dropped off halfway through my internship just because while I was at Consensus, back then they were like really much more focused on like application layer stuff. And I just really wanted to learn proof of, like, like do more protocol layer stuff. But right. while I was at Consensus, I just got super into proof of stake. And so I just kind of slacked off on my job at consensus, but instead spent the entire time reading like every proof of stake white paper I could find. And that's sort of how I found out about Tendermint. I'm like, oh, I want to go work on this. This sounds really cool. So I was doing my internship at consensus at after my sophomore year. And then I dropped out of my internship at consensus, start working on Tendermint. And then come September, I was just so into it that I dropped out of Berkeley as well to keep working on Tendermint. Right. So, okay. So that's interesting. So this is, I guess, was that driven by a, an, an urgency in you that you kind of felt that you couldn't waste more time, if that's the right word, in kind of going through academia? You just wanted to get straight into the space? Yeah, basically. I mean, I tried to do both. And then literally the day before classes, the uh, syllabus for like one of my courses came out. I don't know if you know Nicholas Weaver. He's like a professor at Berkeley who like- Yeah, he not has, personally. Um, yeah, he has some weird hot takes on crypto. But, you know, for his course, the syllabus came out and one of the midterms conflicted with DevCon 3, I think it was at the time. <laughs> and I wrote an email to him being like, hey, you know, I'm giving a talk here at DevCon. Can I, like, move this midterm around? And I don't know if it was because it was a crypto event or not, but, you know, he's like, <laughs> no. And I'm like, fine, I'm just going to drop your course. And then I'm like, wait a second you know, this is going to keep happening. Let me just drop all my courses. Let me just focus on what I'm doing. <laughs> but then you went back to Berkeley, right? And kind of helped them develop their course around blockchain. So what was it that you kind of took, took you back there? Why did you think that was an important thing to do? Yeah, so I was one of the co-founders of this organization called Blockchain at Berkeley. And I did that while I was still a student there. So what, what Berkeley does is they have this really cool program where anyone can sort of teach up. Any students can teach a class. You just have to go find a faculty member to sponsor your, you know, like back your class. But, you know, you, you're teaching four credit classes. Me and two friends, so Max Fang and Philip Hayes, we 
sort of went to Don Song, who is, you know, she runs the Oasis protocol now. And yes. we asked her like to back this. And we started this class at Berkeley just to teach people about Bitcoin. And to be quite honest, mostly to teach ourselves about Bitcoin. Because for me, the way I learn is by teaching. Because if right. you got a lecture on something next week, you you better learn it this week. Um, <laughs> That's why I do the podcast, by the way. It, it forces me to learn the discipline. Yeah, same here. Epicenter, it's like, you know, once a week, got to learn something new. And it's like, forcing right. me, it's like just across the space, not just like so pigeonholed on one field or one topic. But yeah, so we started that course and a lot of people took it, really liked it. And we're like, hey, let's do something bigger with this. You know, instead of just having people take this course and then like go on and do, you know, go take the next like AI or machine learning course next. Like, let's see how we can retain these people. And so we created this organization called Blockchain at Berkeley, where we started to do a couple of things. One, the, the organization kind of took over that course. And then we had, so we had the education department and then we had R&D and consulting. You know, a lot of college students are really trying to build up the resumes. We're like, hey, at that time, it's like, you know, peak 2016, 2017, like all these companies that were out there like wanting to, get their hands on blockchain. And so we're like, well, you know, we know a thing or two, how can we help them? And so we started that helping and that organization grew pretty big. And then even after I dropped out, uh, I still continued to live in the city of Berkeley. Like I said, I dropped out the day before classes started. So, you know, I already was living in my frat house and stuff at the time. So I continued doing that and I was still really involved with blockchain at Berkeley, you know, even up to, even up to like today, like, you know, I still, you know, help out with like mentoring and stuff for any students who are interested in talking about stuff. Very cool. And so it's an interesting topic in terms of how do you win mindshare? So obviously without all the price action that was happening in 2017, I mean, maybe that won't happen again. Maybe with everything that's going on in TikTok right now, there's going to be a whole new wave. But <laughs> how, how do you win mindshare? Because obviously you've got a lot of very bright technical people. They could be applying that to any number of different domains. I guess the you know, whether it's quantum, whether it's machine learning, you know, how, how do you win mindshare? What is, what is it that, that, that seems to cut through with mm. developers that are looking for where to kind of you know, develop their career and apply their brains? Yeah, it, it's definitely a hard challenge, especially at like such a large school with, like Berkeley where there's so many things people could be doing. To be honest, you know, the price action definitely brought a lot of people along back in those days. Um, another thing that I think was kind of really important at Berkeley where this like student organization at Berkeley was probably like one of the, like came up much earlier. Like it actually started back in like 2014. And I feel like, I think maybe Berkeley and MIT are sort of the only two that were doing sort of crypto stuff this early on. Um, MIT, I feel was doing it a lot. Like, you know, they were really into the technology side, but I think what's interesting about Berkeley is Berkeley, uh, you know, as you might know, it's a very political school, right? Like. The students at Berkeley tend to have like a lot of political, you know, ideology and stuff that they're really passionate about. And so that was actually, I think a lot of the early members of Blockchain Berkeley were actually driven more so by that side of things. And, you know, if you remember back in like 2016, there was like a lot, you know, it was along with the U.S. presidential election, there was a lot of like political stuff actually happening on the Berkeley campus at the time, especially with regards to things like, free speech and stuff like that. And so I think that just sort of definitely helped instigate that. And so we, we, we kind of really did try to focus on that early on. And then when we wanted to expand beyond that, then we started kind of figuring out what, what are students looking to do where, you know, if they want to, 
lot of students were looking for like the opportunity to do sort of consulting style work. And so we were able to build out something where they can do consulting, but still learn about a new technology at the same time, where it was like, you know, there's other consulting clubs on campus where like, you know, they would go do web design for like these companies. And like, we're like, well, you know, you could do that or you could like get some consulting work under your belt, but also like be learning something much cooler alongside that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because again, you've that kind of political origin, or, or perhaps the hook is is the political possibilities, um, or looking at blockchains as political systems. And again, I know you've used a lot of analogies where you say compare Ethereum to an empire, and what you're mm-hmm. doing with Cosmos. Actually, I forget the, the direct comparison. Uh, I, I call it the world of nation states. Yes, there you go. That's it. I know you've talked about things like shared security in the context of being like NATO. So from your perspective, the thing that kind of motivates you, is it in that context? If you look at the mission of, say, Interchain, um, I mean, just to quote it, it says, we believe that open source cryptographic consensus-driven economic networks hold the key to an anti-fragile global economic system and equal opportunity for all. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's not necessarily exactly representative of your perspective, but can you work in blockchain and not have a political ideology? Can can you, can you look at it purely as a, as a technology? Is that possible? Um, Yeah, I, I, I I think so. So I actually am in the middle of, I I just finished writing up a blog post uh, sort of, I'll publish it pretty soon, but, I, I kind of talk about sort of the three or maybe four narratives of the blockchain space. And so it start, you know, the three main ones are what I would say, sound money, web three and open finance or, or DeFi. And then I, I kind of, I think there might be a fourth one called open law, but which is like sort of still in its very infancy right now. And I think the sound money one might be the one where you have, you know, maybe it's the most political of the all, but I think all of them do at least have some notion of decentralization. Web3 is not necessarily about political decentralization, but it's about decentralizing, you know, the control of like the large internet giants or the DeFi is about decentralizing control of like large financial institutions. So it's not necessarily always having to be decentralizing government, but it, it, there usually does have to be some form of decentralizing some large entrenched actor. Yeah. Now, I mean, I guess one of the beauties of something like Cosmos is that it does allow you to cater to a spectrum of sovereignties. You know, so on the one hand, I know you talk about there being zones more linked to this cypherpunk type mentality and others that could be specific for China and fully functional and integrating into what they're trying to do with their, their, their government-backed mm-hmm. currency. So compared to if it was one protocol you know, with one set of belief systems, what one uh, set of governance, then I, I guess it gets a bit more binary. To just kind of untangle the, the Cosmos ecosystem a, a little bit more. So as we mentioned, there's kind of uh, All in Bits Inc., which is effectively Tendermint Inc. You have Cosmos Hub, you have Tendermint Core. Could you just talk about the constituent parts, how they interact, and I guess how they've evolved? So kind of from the genesis to what they're becoming now. And of course, in that context, in general terms, you know, the role of a founder that creates that and, and how things might, might devolve outwards. Yeah, sure. Um, 
by the way, just to the point you mentioned earlier, yeah, and I, I guess I never thought of it in that term, but I think one interesting way to think of Cosmos is it's trying to decentralize Ethereum. If Ethereum is a larger entrenched actor, which is maybe not, you know, it's been a good actor up until now, but if you don't want the entire blockchain ecosystem to be reliant on like this one system and you, that you want to decentralize uh, that as well and give smaller communities more power. Um, yeah, maybe we can come back to that. Yeah, let me yeah, answer yeah. your question about the uh, ecosystem itself. So it started back in 2014 where Jaquan, he was interested in consensus protocols and he, a lot of people were like talking about proof of stake at the time, or not a lot of people, but a few people were, uh, but most of them were kind of putting it, trying to adapt it to the like Nakamoto consensus of Bitcoin. What what Jay's like really big insight was, was he like went back and read all these old consensus protocols from the 80s and 90s and realized that, hey, maybe there's a way we can actually use them today with proof of stake. So the problem is that they were, these old consensus protocols were usually only meant to work in a permissioned setting. Uh, but what he realized is you can, combine the proof of stake system with these old BFT consensus protocols in order to create a permissionless BFT protocol rather than a Nakamoto consensus protocol. And so this uh, insight turned out to, you know, be really valuable. And so the other thing what kind of what was wrong with the old consensus protocols as it was that they were considered to be not very, you know, performant. Like they, like, oh, you can maybe get like, 10 machines talking on a local network and that's about it but you know quite honestly all of those reference implementations then were written by like phd students for their theses in like python or something so what jay did was he worked with ethan buckman who was he was working at monax at the time or back then it was called yeah back then it was called monax now it's called hyperledger borough but they started basically collaborating to build a reference implementation in Go using like modern concurrency and like just generally just good engineering practices. And it turns out they were able to build a consensus protocol, that, a cons consensus engine, uh, Tendermint Core, which is the software that can scale to hundreds to thousands of validators globally distributed. And we can actually get some real scale there. And so that's sort of how when they decided to form this company called Tendermint, and now that they had this consensus protocol, they have this hammer. Now they're in search of a nail and they were trying to figure out, we have a consensus protocol. What can we use it for? Um, and that's sort of when the Cosmos vision sort of came out, came about sort of in, you know, late 2016 or, or so, where they kind of had this idea of, you know, what the Cosmos vision is today of many chains that are all able to talk to each other. And, you know, this BFT consensus protocol will be really useful because you have the fast finality. You have finality in one to two seconds. And, you know, Blockstream wrote their sidechains protocol as well back in like, you know, similar time period. I don't remember exactly when, maybe 2015 or so. But, you know, Bitcoin block headers will like take 60 minutes before you can like consider them pseudo finalized. And this just doesn't work. And so they realized, hey, we can use this great finality engine we did to make this sidechain vision that sort of blockchain kind of really originated it, but like we can actually make this a reality using this. And so that's sort of where the Cosmos vision came about. And we realized to make that Cosmos vision come about, 
there were sort of three main tools that we needed. The first was Tenement Core, which, you know, we had already done. Obviously, there, you know, we've been developing it and making it way and way better over the years. But then the other two tools were the Cosmos SDK and IBC. So if we want a world where all these chains can sort of, more and more chains are coming about and they're all talking to each other, well, we need two things, which is, one, a toolkit to make it very easy for developers to build these new chains. And two is a protocol to allow all these chains to send tokens and data and contract calls at, amongst each other, a sort of TCP IP for blockchains, a standard protocol to allow any two chains to talk to each other. And so that's sort of what we've been working on since then, where we basically spent most of 2017 and 2018 building the Cosmos SDK and making it this toolkit. And then we built our own chain called the Cosmos Hub in partially as a sort of dog fooding to like, while we're building the Cosmos SDK, we're building the Cosmos Hub and making it better and better. And then we spent basically most of 2019 and 2020 so far developing IBC. And hopefully that should be releasing pretty soon and hopefully on the scale of a few months. But that's sort of the roadmap where we are today. Oh, and sorry. Uh, so I guess a couple of organiz one organization I forgot to mention was when they sort of did the Cosmos idea, they did a public fundraiser or ICO in order to raise funds for the Atom token, which is a staking token for the Cosmos hub. And that was, they created a new organization called the Interchain Foundation, uh, which is a Swiss foundation. And so the ICF is sort of technically the, maybe you could call them the steward of the ecosystem. And then the ICF would contract Tendermint to do a lot of the core development up until now. So now the ICF is sort of decentralizing a lot more of its core development to more teams than just Tendermint. Got you. And I guess, um, uh, so that kind of evolution now of, um, uh, is that being kind of run through grants programs then primarily, right? So rather than it just being a, a contract with Tendermint Inc., it's now grants being given out to multiple parties. Exactly, yeah. It's more, you know, earlier on, it used to be sort of a more of a blank check sort of thing where Tendermint would go off and do whatever it needs and then send a bill for it at the end of the year. But now it's much more sort of objective based where it's like, okay, these are the things that we're going to do. And there's more competition for these grants from the ICF as well, because there are many more development companies within the Cosmos ecosystem now, some that are, you know, were formed by sort of companies that splintered off of Tendermint, but also some that are just from like brand new projects altogether. Like, for example, you know, Region, that's the team that sort of started using the Cosmos SDK because they wanted to build their own project with it. But then they've just started contributing a lot, a lot more and more to the Cosmos uh, core development as well. So they've been doing a lot of really good work. And then also, what's also cool is now there's also some funding coming from the Cosmos hub governance itself, because what happens is a, por a percentage of all inflation gets put into what's called the community pool. And the governance of the Cosmos hub can use the community pool to make payouts to do sort of different things. And so two of the things that have already been approved was one, Figment Network, which is the name of a validator. They were approved to do a lot of uh, great governance documentation. And then there's another company called Confio. They were approved continued development on Cosm Wasm, which is their, a smart contracting system that they're developing. 
Yeah, and I guess, you know, so really it's kind of introducing a bit of a market economy around the protocol. Um, and, you know, we all know the benefits of, of competition. So with hindsight, you know, retrospectively, if, you, if you're kind of sat in front of a founder now and they're rolling out a, a new protocol, likely not going to be a layer one, given uh, where we're at. But, you know, some kind of primitive, what lessons are there in the Cosmos journey? I mean, it, it sounds like, I know there's been, drama but which where, where hasn't there been drama i would i would say in the, the blockchain space the marks but, of a mature ecosystem yeah drama. right exactly um but you know the place that you find yourself in today looks pretty good but is there anything with hindsight you would recommend to be done differently to a founder if they were starting out sort of a recommendation i would have to many founders uh you know based on some of the experiences at tenderman I think Zaki put it really well, Zaki Manian. He, he had this tweet where he said, for all, uh, you know, I, I don't want this to come across as if I'm, you know, I'm attacking Jay. I've had, you know, I've talked to Jay about a lot of these things and, you know, he agrees that some of these were uh, issues. And so, you know, we're, we're on pretty good terms about this, but the way Zaki phrased it was for all of Jay's brilliance in designing decentralized protocols, he failed to sufficiently de decentralize Tendermint as a company. And it kind of got, it got into this position where sort of Jay was the CEO and the largest shareholder and the only board member. And I think this sort of led to some problems where, you know, when he, if the, uh, if when he becomes a Byzantine node, like, you know, I think maybe back in January, maybe he was having some, you know, issues with like certain things and you know he kind of started acting a bit bizarrely and that kind of concerned a lot of people uh especially given the amount of control he has in the company and so i would one thing i would recommend to founders would be is to really you know make sure that you don't build yourself into this like central point of failure and so this is something that's great now which is happening where jay has actually you know we he switched to a cto role we have a new ceo um and we actually just expanded the board as well. So these are sort of, we're sort of also, Tenderman is also sort of learning from its uh, mistakes and improving as well. This isn't unique to blockchain, right? You could, you could make equal arguments about Facebook and the power that Zuckerberg has over that through preferential shares and, uh, you know, any other open source communities, which are largely benevolent dictatorships, right? They have lots of contributors, but they're still ultimately somebody who, whose voice uh, swings the community and mm -hmm. you know clearly there is a requirement for there to be a, a strong voice that the community can rally around but of course as projects evolve and I think people sometimes f forget that entrepreneurs are also people right and and they're, they're kind of evolving and maturing and, and and learning as as they go as well as the organization so yeah. uh, I definitely don't think this is um uh anything specific to Cosmos or even blockchain more generally. Um, so, you know, when we look at your kind of main competitor, and I don't know if you see it in those terms with, with Polkadot, right? I don't know if you see this as a zero sum winner takes all, or um, these, these different networks can coexist, um, but you've, you've kind of taken different approaches to rolling out. Cosmos came off the ramps much quicker um, than Polkadot. Was that intentional? Was that kind of a design choice do you, compared to, say, say, Polkadot? And what do you think the advantages of that approach of rolling out have been? 
Yeah, I would say one of the differences between the uh, the Cosmos team's mindset from the Polkadot team's mindset early on, I think it's changed uh, since then, but early on, Cosmos took a much more iterative approach. We were like, okay, first we're building Tenderman, and we released that and had people using Tenderman Core. Then we're going to build the Cosmos SDK and just release that and have people start building on the Cosmos SDK. Then now we're, gonna, now we're building IDC, then we'll release that and uh, have people start using that. The Polkadot team sort of wanted to go for sort of a more finished product uh, as their initial product, where they wanted to have the full fledged system with like shared security and cross chain and everything all, all at once. And that's what they wanted to launch with. Um, and so I think that was sort of one of the main differences, you know, Cosmos, we also want to go towards shared security. Like that's also a goal of ours, but that's like, you know, the next step after IDC. And so this iterative versus all out approach is sort of have, has been one of the main differences. But I think since then the Polkadot team actually has realized that, you know, maybe this iterative approach does also make sense. Cause you know, if you look at the Polkadot chain that's launching today, it doesn't actually have parachains or anything like that right now. So I think they've also realized that sort of this iterative approach is uh, the correct one. And I guess the other main difference is we really try to see Cosmos and the Cosmos hub as two somewhat distinct projects. You know, the Polkadot relay chain is the Polkadot ecosystem. And so what that means is in Cosmos, we take a sovereign first approach where it's, you know, you want to build a blockchain using our the Cosmos toolkit, you know, go use the Cosmos SDK and you can have your own validator set. And then if you don't want to find your validator own validator set, you know, the Cosmos hub will eventually be able to have sort of shared security where, you know, if you want to, you can opt in to having that. While Polkadot sort of by default, you know, assumes everyone wants to use Polkadot security and, you know, you can go use their toolkit like Substrate to go build a separate chain, but it's not really their core focus per se. And so that I would say is one of the main differences. Um, and from a collaboration versus competitive point of view, you know, I, th I would say that the Cosmos vision is pretty collaborative with the Polkadot one, where the vision of Cosmos is just get as many chains being built and, and connect them all together using a standard protocol. So there's a company in the Cosmos ecosystem called Chorus One. They're actually in the process of developing an IBC module for Substrate. So that way you can have Cosmos SDK-based chains talking to Parity Substrate-based chains. And I, I'm a... And you know, for me, I, I love Substrate as well. I've developed chains using Substrate. And so whether people want to use Cosmos SDK or Substrate, I'm happy with both as long as they're all using IBC and talking to each other. I would say eventually down the road, I think the Cosmos Hub and Polkadot are maybe more competitive because they're basically going to be offering similar features, which is this shared security. And so I think those two will start to maybe compete more going down the road, but both of them aren't aren't even at the point yet where they're offering those shared security features. Yeah, and I was going to say, um, I mean, you can't really talk about market share at the moment because there isn't really a market, right? It's, it's right. who's going who's gonna to help grow 
the industry most effectively. And again, I think that's why it's really interesting to speak to you because of your experience in, in, in onboarding developers. Maybe to stay at a, that, the high level for, for the purpose of founders on here that might not be so technical, that might not necessarily fully understand how Cosmos works. Could you just give like a very high level on hubs and zones and, and how that works? Yeah, sure. So the idea of Cosmos is sort of build your own chain. So if you have an application you want to build, instead of building it as a smart contract on another chain like Ethereum, you know, which as you mentioned, I call it the empire model, we recommend you go off and build it on your own chain where your community is sort of owns this chain. You're never subject to like weird governance stuff that happens on the other chain. If you're code has a bug, your community can decide whether to revert it or not. You don't have to go off and try to convince this massive Ethereum community to do it. Um, And quite honestly, I would say many projects don't actually benefit much from being on Ethereum. Like I can give an example, which is MakerDAO. MakerDAO doesn't get any security from being on Ethereum because realistically what happens is in MakerDAO, you get your security either from the security of the MKR token, which controls governance, or the security of ETH, which controls the operation layer. If you wanted to break Maker, you wouldn't attack ETH, you would attack MKR. But so what this means is that if you're using DAI, you're actually only getting the security of MKR, but you're paying for the security of ETH in the form of uh, on-chain fees and everything. And you know this is also why I call it the empire model. You have to pay your fees in someone else's currency. So the difference is, for example, that you have this wide-scale economic integration, but you have the political diversity. And I really like that framing. Yeah, yeah. So empires basically try to get economic integration. You, you allow people in Italy to trade with Persia because you put them all in one like political sphere. The idea of cosmos and of, you know, the modern world order is that we can get like large scale economic integration without the large scale political in, uh, integration. And we get this through like a couple, a lot of technologies made this possible. One is like free trade zones, um, institutions like the UN and the World Bank. And I think one of the most important is containerization. Containerization is this idea, like basically in the 70s, if you ever go to like the docks, you know, you see all those like shipping containers. It's like every shipping container in the world follows the same standards and dimensions. Any ship can pick up a this box full of any good in any port in the world and transport it to any other port in the world and they know it will be able to be unloaded properly. And so this containerization of like shipping crates is sort of how we see IBC is like the goal is to build this standard protocol of like, okay, all messages that are outgoing between chains, they have to at least follow these common standards. So that way we can get any, all these chains talking to each other. Um, yeah. So the idea was, Build Maker on your own chain. Build Augur on your own chain. Build, uh, you know, Zero X on your own chain, and then we can connect all these chains and have them start talking to each other using IBC. Where the Cosmos Hub comes in is it kind of offers two things. One is let's say two chains, uh, you know, let's say my chain is built using the Cosmos SDK and it knows Tendermint consensus. 
and your chain is built using parity substrate and you know the whole grandpa babe consensus system. If I want to talk to your chain, I would have to, uh, you know, add, so we call these ICSs, interchain standards. So we'd have to, I'd have to upgrade my chain to support the interchain standard to talk to your chain. But now let's say a third chain, chain comes along. It's built using Agorix-like system with a different consensus protocol. I, well, now both these chains have to upgrade to, to support that. And so you don't want to constantly be upgrading your chain to be up to date with, so you can connect to everyone else. The idea is the Cosmos hub can act as this sort of universal translator where you can, you just have to be able to talk to the hub and the hub can talk to everyone else. Sort of like what ISPs do today, right? Like you don't, connect to everyone over the internet. You have these sort of ISPs that do this sort of hub and spoke sort of connecting. And then the other feature it will add, what the main thing it offers is those sort of shared security like features where it's a highly secure chain and it can sort of lease out its security to other new chains that want to borrow it and like be able to bootstrap their security. Yeah, and you know we're seeing huge traction. I mean, you mentioned Agoric; they're one of our portfolio. Um, but I know of several others who have mm-hmm. you know, started out building what might be considered a layer one, um, and are very quickly migrating over into, uh, say, Cosmos. Um, and you know the, the kind of reasoning that I've heard beyond even interoperability actually is that. For them to achieve the same level of security and network hardening, it would just take too much money and too much time uh, and distract them from applying it to, to the use case. And what I found is a lot, of, a lot of infrastructure was built because somebody just wanted to execute on an application and they couldn't. The, the infrastructure wasn't there and they ended up kind of built, moving down the stack. Um, yep. it was kind of what, what, that what happened with me. Like, when I was at Consensus, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to build and I was just not happy with like solidity development, which is just one of the reasons I switched, you know, I started working on causes where I like, I want this development process to be much easier. Yeah. And so if we look at the, um, some of the stats in terms of the, the traction um, uh, with, with Tenement and Cosmos, I think it's $6 billion plus dollars in digital assets secured on the Cosmos blockchain. Um, just under uh, 9,000 GitHub stars on, on Tenement projects, 100 plus projects in, in, in the ecosystem now actively um, working. So as the interface to the community, and as we said, I think success isn't market share now, but growing, effectively growing the, the, the ecosystem. Um, wh- how are you seeing that success? And I guess in, in your day-to-day when you were, when you're at Tenement, like actively, what, what does that involve? Yeah, so some of the main things that we're looking for is we look at the number of chains, like people that are starting to build new Cosmos SDK-based chains. That was sort of one of our primary metrics, um, as well as one of the things that we were we try to focus on is like cross-collaboration and communication between teams using the Cosmos SDK. So one of the whole premises of the Cosmos SDK is it's built using this very modular architecture. So if, let's say, the Kava team, they go ahead for their use case, they built an auctions uh, module because for their CDP system. Well, you know, you have your own chain that's doing something else and, you know, but you happen to also need an auction system. 
And so you want to be able to sort of b borrow that auctions module that Kaver has written and reuse it in your own chain. And so the, that, the sort of cross collaboration is also another sort of important piece that we look towards. And so uh, one of the shining examples of this is that Cosmwasm project I mentioned, where it was originally started at a hackathon like last year, but now uh, more and more chains are in the Cosmos community are starting to use Cosmwasm. So Terra, um, Enig uh, Enigma, is for, so for sort of example, they are using Cosmwasm, but then they're adding their own whole like privacy stuff to it. And so it's turning out to be this like really cool piece of completely community originated infrastructure that is becoming this like very key piece throughout the Cosmos ecosystem. So I guess that's another piece that we look towards. Yeah, I mean, and I guess, as you say, in, in the instance of Enigma, and I know several others who believe that, you know, in that instance of Cosmos, they will have some specialist, you know, functionality. Um, but one of the benefits is, is that that can then be leveraged by the wider Cosmos ecosystem um, rather than just in their own instance. So um, obviously that, that promises for some really great rate of innovation to be coming out from, from across that ecosystem as a whole. So your next thing is Seeker. So uh, is this your first founder initiative? So um, I, I founded Seeker about close to two years ago now. So while I was at Tendermint, what happened was, you know, so Tendermint is like a for-profit company. And so we were considering running validators, but we kind of decided that, you know what, maybe if Tendermint runs validators, it would become too centralized and you, you would just get too much delegation. And so instead, what we did was we said, you know, any employee that wants to go run their own validator, you can go ahead and do so. And what this kind of does is it distributes the reputation that Tendermint would get and kind of distribute it over a couple of different validators. And so a couple of validators came out of this, such as, you know, Occlusion, Cryptium Labs, Umbrella, a couple others. Um, and so Sicko was one of them. So I started it with one of my coworkers at Tendermint and also my friend from Blockchain at Berkeley. Uh, and so we started Sicko and we started running it. Kind of, to be honest, I started it as a way to improve my core development work where it's like, if I'm developing infrastructure for the core internet, I want to also run an ISP company just so I can be a user of my own tools. And so that's sort of how Sika started. And then, you know, going through it, it just started doing better and better. And, you know, we quickly became one of the largest validators on Cosmos Hub. And then we started running on some more chains. So we joined Kaba uh, and we are also now the second largest validator on Kaba as well. So uh, it sort of just became a larger and larger thing. And so excited to see where it goes next. But yeah, that's sort of the story of Sika. And, and how do you see that space evolving? How, how do you avoid commodification? And you know, how, how do you maintain margins? Like, uh, how do you see that market forming? It's going to be a tough one, to be honest. Like, I think, I think it's a really tough market. Um, I think validators really are going to become like heavily commoditized. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see a larger rise of exchange validators, but really just what what's going to have to happen is validators have to differentiate themselves and they have to provide other services or just use validation as a 
loss leader towards other services. So, you know, there's this big movement of staking is DeFi, but running a validator without providing some proprietary or some advantages like integration with the DeFi ecosystem, I think that has to be the future where like, you know, people can stake with you, but then, oh, they can also go use your tokens and, you know, you, you, when they stake with you, they get some other benefits on some other protocol here. An example, you know, I've seen is like initial delegation offerings. It's like an idea I had a little <laughs> while ago, which is a lot of the people running validators are building other chains as well. So like, for example, uh, for Bowl is one that they're building their own chain called Desmos, but they're also a major validator. And so they could do something where it's like, hey, instead of doing an ICO, but instead, you know, put their commission rate as to something maybe higher than usual, let's say 20, 30%, but say like, hey, the longer people delegate to us, you get tokens on this new chain as well. So that's like an interesting example where you do have to have something where it's like, you want to make it so delegators are not just going to like the highest yield. You want want them to have something else they're going to for. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting idea about how you kind of create stickiness around that. Um, look, Sonny, it's been great having you on, uh, conscious of your your time. I really appreciate your candidness. And I think it's going to be really interesting for people to understand how the ecosystem's evolving there. I wish you the best luck with Seeker and thanks for coming on today. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.